to smoke about this time of the day. And all this is keeping me to where I can't go do it. Now, I'm gonna go do it. Well, hello, and welcome to About This Time of Day, a teen mom podcast, where we are living in 2009 and would please like to stay there. My name is V, I am your host, and this is the podcast where we get high and talk about a TV show that, by all rights, should have been canceled already. If you made it past the last episode, thank you so much for joining us once again. I'm so glad the poor editing didn't deter you from tuning in once more. As I promised, we have another episode for you. Today we're going to be talking about episode 2 of Teen Mom, How Many Chances? The description reads, Teen Mom Macy contemplates breaking up with her fiancé, Ryan. What? I thought they were doing so well. Farrah starts dating a new guy, even though her family disapproves. Seems like a repeat of last episode. Amber struggles to get her GED. Okay. And Caitlin feels distant from her daughter since the adoption. Uh Uh-oh. Sounds like we might have some of that hesitancy and resistance coming back up to bite us. But I hope not. The official episode companion for this episode is Pangea in a distillate cartridge. It is a hybrid, so if I'm a little bit more awake than normal, that's why. What is going on, you guys? I didn't know that cartridges were unpopular. I know I'm out of the loop and I'm pretty old school, but... Why don't people like cartridges? I know it has something to do with you don't get the full the full effect as you would. The, there's a word that I'm not thinking of right now because I'm high. Um, <laughs> that you would if you were smoking or otherwise vaping. But I don't know. These dissipate so quickly and they're very portable. I, I don't know. For a covert stoner like me, this is just perfect. If it gets you high, why are you complaining is my, <laughs> is my philosophy. But I really like the flavor of this one. It's, again, very light and airy, like a lot of the flavors I seem to pick up. So that's great. One thing that I notice about this, it tastes like baby lotion. Is that weird? Have you ever, you know, the smell of baby lotion? That's kind of what this tastes like at first. So I'm all about it. I really just picked it in honor of Earth Day. So thank you, Earth, for giving us marijuana. And I hope everybody had a great 420 at that. Now on with the show. This episode begins with Macy. Maybe that means we'll have a more Macy-focused episode than Farrah-focused episode? One can only hope. It seems we've skipped ahead about a month in Macy's story from when we've last seen her, as now she lets the viewer know that she's six weeks away from marrying Ryan. And I am continuing to shit my pants. Are you fucking serious? Six weeks away? There's no urgency in this girl. We see her very briefly talking to Bentley as she's getting ready to go out. Bentley looking as cute as a little potato bug. Just such a sweet baby. And she asks Bentley, are you excited to see your dad when he comes home? Bentley doesn't answer. And that's about the answer that you would get from him today, I'm sure. The scene continues, and Macy drops Bentley off with the grandparents so she could go shopping, and her and her friends are seen in a cute little wedding boutique trying on a bunch of different beautiful white wedding dresses. Macy tries on a few different ones. Her friends give the opinion, you know, your basic shopping outing. 
and Macy finally comes across one that she thinks is the dress that she is going to say yes to. No, I don't watch that show. When it comes to the final price tag, she's looking at about $1,400, closer to $15. Oof. I mean, this is 2009 money that we're looking at. $14, almost $1,500 for a teenager in 2009. Where is she going to come up with that money? Well, she doesn't worry about that at this moment. Right now, she's looking in the mirror wearing her perfect wedding dress. It looks great, and Macy looks great. She's standing in the mirror, and she's reflecting on how a year ago that she didn't think this wedding was going to happen. And we as viewers get to see a great flashback to her and Ryan's greatest hits. Essentially, Ryan just being unhelpful and the two of them arguing, saying if it weren't from Bentley, they wouldn't even be together. I'm glad that things have changed for them. But we won't know if anything's really changed, I think, until Ryan gets back, which Macy's voiceover tells us is going to be tomorrow. Her scene ends and... We're left hoping with her that things go according to plan, so on October 3rd... It's October 3rd. ...they can have the wedding that they've always imagined. The next episode with Macy already has me feeling some type of way. Ryan comes home and actually seems happy to be home. He comes in the door, gives Macy a hug and a kiss, extending affection. This is great, Ryan. Wonderful to see. He sits down on the couch beside her. They're both happy that he's home, and they're just kind of talking, catching up. She lets him know that she found a wedding dress. He asks her if she likes it, as if she were just trying dresses on for fun. After this very short conversation, Macy asks, so what are you doing tonight? What's Ryan's first night home? He hasn't seen his son in a month. He's going to stay home, right? He's, he's going to stay home, right? What are you doing tonight? I don't know. I think everybody's going out, and uh, I'm going to go with them. Okay. Downtown. All right, so are you going to be upset if I go out tonight? No. No? Go out. Do what you want. Ooh, that dreaded kiss of death. Do what you want. I feel like everybody should know by now, anytime a woman in any relationship says ever, do what you want, you better not fucking do what you want. I'm not really a proponent of doublespeak. I don't think it's fair use in relationship terms. That said... Macy gets a pass here in my book, and I'll tell you why. We already have on film Macy saying, if Ryan wants to go out, how is she going to stop him? Why would she want to stop him? Clearly, he has his priorities, and he is showing them. So we have Macy here, standing by what she said before. No, Ryan, do what you want. Ryan says love you, walks out the door. So, of course, editing, keep in mind editing, but the viewer sees Ryan home for what is perceived as about a half hour, couple hours max, before he's out the door again. The lighting doesn't even change outside before he's leaving. Of course, the scene continues on to later in the night where Macy and Bentley are sitting together on the couch, and it is darker out. You can tell time has passed now. Macy just says to little Bentley, dad's out with his friends. And I'm sure Bentley's thinking, who's dad? Who's that guy? 
I haven't seen that guy in a month. Where did he come from? And granted, he was away for work, yeah. But now that you're home, Ryan, stay the fuck home. And the scene continues, and we as viewers are treated to a very disturbing conversation in the car ride with Ryan and his buddies. They're talking to Ryan about how he's back in town and how that feels, because, I mean, think about it. He's been a single man with no wife and, well, no girlfriend and no baby for the last 30 days. It only takes 21 days to form a habit, so he got an extra nine on there. We see them in the car now discussing what it's like to be back home, and his friend tells him to think of it in this way. You're free within certain limits. With us, you're free. Saying this to Ryan, what the fuck does that mean? What are you guys about to do tonight? What the fuck did you just leave Macy at home for to go out and fucking do, Ryan? Are you joking? This is gross. Where? What's going on? Macy's scene here ends by cutting back to her at home with Bentley. Macy's in her pajamas getting Bentley ready for bed. I don't know if he had woken up or if he was already awake, but she's holding Bentley on the couch downstairs, both in PJs. Her voiceover says, I thought things with Ryan were too good to be true. Macy opens her next scene by letting the viewer know that Ryan has been straight up ignoring her since he's gotten home. Motherfucker, why? You know, every time I rewatch, like for some reason, I hope it's going to be different. Like this time, Ryan's going to come home. This time, Ryan's not going to go out with his friends, but it's never different. And we see Macy here taking the day with Bentley and going with her mother and I think probably staying there for a while. The two of them are discussing in the car her current situation and what she thinks about that. Macy pretty much says what she said before. He knows it's not right. Why should she be complaining and making more drama for herself if she knows that he's not going to listen? That is a lot of energy to put forth towards something that won't change. And she seems to be really sure at this point that that's not going to change. Her mom even asks her, you know, are you prepared to do this alone? Are you prepared to go it alone from here with Bentley? And she says, yeah, I've done it before. I've been doing it this whole time, which is something I said in the last episode. We've seen her take care of Bentley by herself before. And nothing has changed since Ryan has gotten home from his month-long work trip where he was just living the lavish life of a single man all over again. Next up with Macy is the mandatory out to lunch with friends scene. Macy is out to lunch with two of her friends. They're sitting on a patio and they're talking about the dress. They're talking about the wedding. They're talking about how Ryan hasn't been around at fucking all. I think these are the two friends she went dress shopping with, but I really wasn't paying that close attention because aside from that one friend, Kiwi, I think her name is, all of her friends kind of come and go. We see them having a discussion on the patio of this restaurant, and Macy is very frank with her friends. He has not been around, he has not been around Bentley, and he certainly hasn't been doing any wedding planning whatsoever. They ask Macy point blank, are you going to still buy the dress? Macy says she's obviously not going to buy a $1,400 dress with a fiancé who is acting like this. Girl, I knew I liked Macy. That is a good head on your shoulders right there. I feel like maybe other women in that situation... That young, potentially a little bit more delusional than Macy, would go through buying the dress thinking, yeah, I mean, he hasn't said we're not getting married. 
we see Macy here making a bit more of a responsible decision. Macy continues to be frank with her friends and goes so far as to say that she's at a point right now where she truly believes she could go out and find someone else who's not Bentley's father who would treat Bentley better than his actual father does right now. And I feel like from what we've seen of Macy, what we know of Macy, her morals and her behavior, for her to say something like that is a very, very strong statement. We knew that she was really trying to make it work with Ryan. But we have her admitting to her friends right here and now on camera that there are probably other guys out there that she could bring into Bentley's life who would treat Bentley better. I think that statement should go to show that the viewers have not seen really just how bad Ryan is. The scene ends with Macy asking a question that I think everybody asks themselves at some point in a troubled relationship. I don't want to think that I haven't given him enough chances, but when is enough? When we next see Macy, Ryan is making good on all the things she just said about him. Macy is shown to be up at about 3 in the morning with baby Bentley. 3 in the morning and Ryan is not home. She calls. He doesn't answer. We continue to see Macy throughout the night, 4 in the morning, 5, 7 in the morning. Ryan is nowhere in sight. The scene gets spliced with footage of Ryan out at a bar partying, drinking, dancing with girls who are not Macy, telling his friends that, oh, I don't know what Macy's doing tonight. I'm going to get wild tonight. And I really can't say for sure if this is happening at the same time on the same night, or if this is footage from the first time we saw Ryan leaving the house to go out that they're just splicing in here to make it look like it's happening at the same time. It doesn't really matter because I 100% believe that Ryan is leaving the house so often to where you could put this in for any fucking night and it's still going to be true. I hate to see Macy suffer like this. The scene ends out with Macy's voiceover letting the viewer know that she thinks this was Ryan's last chance. Good for you, Macy. Please let this be Ryan's last chance because what the fuck? Who does that? Who leaves such a nice girl like Macy and such a beautiful baby like Bentley at home alone so you can go what? Drink and fuck? Like, I get it. I get the appeal. But you must have no conscience. You must have no conscience. Or you're addicted to something. Mmm. Mmm. In Macy's next scene, she lets us know that she's dropped Bentley off with her mom because Ryan has been treating her extremely poorly. So Macy is going out to eat with her friend, Keely. I think I referred to her as Kiwi earlier. I apologize. Her name is Keely. Macy and Keely go out to dinner and just discuss what is going on with Ryan. What is Macy going to do about it? By the end of their conversation, Macy has come to the decision. She is going to move out. She and Bentley both deserve better than this, and she's not getting it from Ryan. She's given Ryan plenty of chances, as the title of the show states, how many chances can she give before it's too much? We see Macy reach that point here. Their scene ends at the restaurant, and it pans back to Macy at home. We see her writing a Dear John letter to Ryan. Dear Ryan, I think you know that I love you, and we both know that I've tried my hardest to make this relationship work. I'm going to leave for a while to see where life can take me and Bentley, and maybe one day we can put this back together in a better way. And that is all that I really want. I'm always here for you, and I will always love you. Love, Macy and Bentley. 
That music continues over Macy placing Bentley in the car, getting herself in the car, and driving off into the proverbial sunset. In fact, the same sunset that we saw Ryan drive off into when he was going on his month-long work trip. I have to wonder if the producers called Ryan home or something because we see Ryan stop home not long after Macy leaves. Of course, that's how it's made to look to us as the viewer. But just for as much as we've been given the idea that he doesn't come home, I guess I'm surprised he came home within 24 hours to find this note. You know what I mean? He comes home, finds the note, sees Macy's ring that she left on the dresser, tries to give her a call, goes right to voicemail. He looks sad, but he might also just be tired from being out all night. It's hard to really tell. Can't quite understand what he's feeling here. Macy is on her way, probably moving back in with mom, and Ryan is sitting there wondering what's happened to his life or just kind of wanting a nap. Ryan eventually does get in contact with Macy. Looks like it's the same day. I'm not sure how much time has passed and how long she allowed his calls to go to voicemail, but we catch back up with Macy answering one of Ryan's calls. Ryan asks, what's going on? What's going on? And she responds, you didn't come home last night. What do you mean what's going on? So I'm leaving. Okay, now I'm getting a little bit better picture of this time frame. It's hard to tell when they split it up like that. Now I dropped Bentley here. I'm going here. I'm talking about this. Well, how long is this taking? Apparently about 48 hours. So good for you, Macy. You're a girl that can follow through. I admire that. I can't always do the same. We have Ryan asking Macy to come back to the house so they can discuss what's going on. I don't like this idea because they're not on neutral ground. She is going to be put in a place where it is comfortable for her to slip back into a life she knows and is familiar with instead of going back home to mom and dad to where you're no longer independent and probably getting a little nitpicked over your parenting style. It's just kind of what grandparents do, I think, sometimes. Macy goes back to the house and they have a discussion. Ryan asks, so what's going on? Again. Again, he asks. She says, no, you tell me what's going on. You're the one that didn't come home. He says... You're the one that left the note and your ring. For those of you who don't know, this is classic manipulation. He's turning the entire situation around on her and making her the one that needs to do any explaining whatsoever because he cannot take any responsibility for his actions as a deadbeat fucking dad. Why is she being put in this position right now to have to defend herself and her decision to leave? And not even that. It's like you would walk in the door and not even acknowledge that Bentley is here. You don't. You didn't at all. I don't care if you leave me here, but you're leaving him here too. You're ignoring him. I can find somebody else to be with, but he can't find another dad, Ryan. I understand that. Did I not tell you to to work it out with me? To work what out with you? Us. I've tried for a year, and it's the same crap. Like, why would I waste any more of my time on you when you haven't invested any time really in me? I mean, to be honest with you, all I can say is I'm sorry and I can try to show you. If you don't want me to, then I can't. So all that leaves me with is sorry, so... You gotta get your relationship right with him before I would even want to try with you. So until you figure out how to be a dad, a real dad... And now you're getting mad. You're not listening to me. What I'm saying is the truth, Ryan. I don't know. So what are we gonna do? Well, 
you've got your ring back, and I'm moving in with my parents. Hope you made the right decision. I'm done talking about it. Ryan doesn't really seem thrilled with that answer, even though he's done nothing during this conversation to give Macy any reason to stay. And I think when he says, well, I told you to talk to me about this, he's referring to off camera. I'm sure she tried. I'm sure he was too absent to even notice. So here we have it, Ryan. Here is your life now, Ryan. This is what's going to happen. The final scene of this second episode of Teen Mom OG ends with Macy as we began. So this is great. I'm so happy we got more Macy and more Caitlin in this episode. Very, very grateful. We see Macy sticking to her guns. Her friends are helping her move out of Ryan and her's apartment. Good for you. That's got to be so hard. You are literally uprooting your life and your child's life to go back to a place that wasn't quite so independent. Even though she was on her own all the time with Ryan, there's just going to be a little bit more to being back at home with mom and dad. I speak from experience because COVID put me right the fuck back home with mom and dad. We see Macy discussing the decision with her friends just briefly as they're moving everything out. Are you sure this is the right thing to do? Are you, are you confident in your decision? Macy says the same thing that we've been hearing from her. He can ignore me all the fuck he wants. But when he comes in and ignores Bentley, that's when it hurts her. That's when it hurts Macy. We see her tear up here. So unusual for Macy. She's shown us a very sturdy exterior. I'm happy to see a little bit more emotion from her, but I don't think the fact that I haven't seen a lot of emotion from her until this point takes away from her character whatsoever. I think it just goes to show you how difficult this really is for her. They continue with the move and her friends help her get back home. She gets settled in and takes Bentley upstairs to see his new room, which is incidentally Macy's old room. I think they spent time in there probably during 16 and pregnant before she and Ryan moved out together. So it's still filled with those memories. It's still filled with a lot of emotion being back in that room. I can only imagine what's going through Macy's mind. She holds on to Bentley and says, what do you think of your new room? Do you like it? He's unresponsive because he's a small baby, can't really talk. But Macy says, here, give me a hug. We're going to be okay. It's a little bittersweet. We're happy she got away from Ryan. We're sad that Bentley may have to grow up without a dad, without his biological dad. Maybe that's not the case. It's only the second episode. Maybe we're going to be proven wrong. One thing we do know for sure is that we no longer have to worry about wedding planning. Oh, God, you guys, that is a relief. Oh, my God. Next, we meet up with Caitlin and Tyler outside of their high school, and they're both just sitting on a bench talking about how different they feel now that they've gone through this adoption process with Carly and how they don't really feel like a kid anymore. They don't feel like your average teenager anymore. They're different. They've matured is essentially what they're trying to say. I'm not sure if they have that emotional understanding to articulate that, but that's certainly the idea that they're trying to portray here. The scene continues, and we're back at home with Caitlin, who is working on the computer. Her voiceover tells us that they have a deal with Carly's adoptive parents, Teresa and Brandon, that they may keep up with Carly via email and phone calls. But Caitlin says that she wrote a real letter to her. 
Caitlin reads her letter aloud, and a lot of it is, Carly, don't ever think I don't think about you. You're always in our hearts. We did this because we love you, Carly. We really, we being her and Tyler, really think this was the right thing to do for you. And as she's reading it back, I feel like these are things that she should have been working through with Dawn prior to the adoption. I'm wondering why she didn't give this letter to Teresa and Brandon as a part of an adoption stipulation. I don't know the ins and outs of these sort of things. Straight up, I can't remember. (laughs) I can't remember what they did in her 16 and Pregnant episode to commemorate it. I know that Teresa had bought those beautiful bracelets for her, Caitlin, and Carly to wear. I don't remember if Caitlin gave anything aside from her firstborn daughter to commemorate that moment. Here we see her trying to express those feelings and making sure that Carly knows that her mom and dad have always loved her, no matter what. We do hear Caitlin express a little frustration when she goes on to mention sending the letter. If you heard me mention moments ago, they are only allowed to communicate about Carly via email and phone. I gotta send it to her, but we don't even know their last name, so we can't even, like, send it to them. You know? Yeah. I think that we should know where she's living, what's her last name, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it bothers me, too. I I, I, I completely understand why you're upset. Well, I know it bothers you, too. too. Yeah. So I hear this and I have to ask myself, is this a fault of Dawn or is this Caitlin fantasizing, for lack of a better term? We have Dawn, the adoption counselor, as the responsible party to make sure that these children understand what they're doing and what an open adoption means. We have Caitlin here asking for some very personal information well not really asking but wishing she had very personal information about carly and Teresa and brandon now i can't imagine being in that situation i'm sure that is gut-wrenching i don't know how i would handle that as a 17 year old with an unstable support network and an adoption counselor who is just trying to take advantage of my white baby situation I don't know how I would handle that. So I don't want to criticize Caitlin for what she's saying or how she's behaving here, but it really begs the question, what is Dawn telling her? Why does she think that she is entitled to this information? It's not a personality flaw. It's an educational misstep. And we see Caitlin being the victim of that. She continues her conversation with Tyler, saying that she's been really depressed lately, thinking about how if Brandon and Teresa wanted, they can just cut off all ties with them and never update them again about anything. That's a terrifying thought. That's a thought you need to be in active therapy to to work through. I hope we see Caitlin reach out soon here for some talk therapy or just for some support because... The letter she was reading, just how sad and how yearning it was for a connection with Carly, and what we've heard just now, I would say she needs some support right now. For now, we leave it with Tyler and Caitlin agreeing that it's difficult not to be angry in this situation on their end. And I totally agree with him. It's got to be very hard not to be angry. They're obviously not getting the kind of communication from Brandon and Teresa as they were expecting. 
that's just how the scene ends. We move on to the next scene after that, kind of abrupt, very quick, but very telling of how their situation is currently. Caitlin's next scene opens up with she and Tyler heading to a tattoo parlor. They both are planning on getting tattoos commemorating their daughter, Carly. When we last saw them, we were seeing them really dealing with some tough emotions with the adoption and how separated they feel from Carly. So we see them going to place a little bit more permanence in their life with the tattoo. Caitlin wants Carly's footprint that was taken at her birth with her name above it, Carly, and then her date of birth underneath in pretty script lettering. Tyler is going to go with Carly's handprint. I'm not quite clear on if he's getting any lettering or not, but I'm sure we'll find out. It is kind of strange. There's a weird moment where they're just making small talk and the tattoo artist asks, what's Carly's full name? Why the fuck would the tattoo artist care? I can't imagine a scenario in which that would be really naturally brought up in small talk because he already asked, what's your daughter's name? Oh, it's Carly. It's Carolyn. And then he says, what's her full name? That's creepy, dude. Why are you fucking asking me? Now everyone's just kind of uncomfortable. Caitlin and Tyler say, oh yeah, her full name's Carolyn. Um, we, we don't know her last name. And they just kind of trail off. It makes me feel bad because I feel like that may have been something, once again, prompted by producers or whoever. Hey, ask them what their daughter's full name is. This will be great. And maybe for TV it is great, but now everyone's sad and bummed out and I'm trying to get high and do a podcast and I have to try to make this funny. Great. Thank you, MTV. The scene actually pretty much ends here. I didn't realize it was going to be so short. Apparently, they have an appointment to come back the following day to get the tattoos done. Today was just a consultation and a drop. So that's kind of cool. We get to see the art handed back to them from the tattoo artist. Tyler is going to get Carly's name above her handprint and her birth date underneath, kind of in the same way Caitlin is doing the footprint, but his lettering is going to be a little bit more macho. It's gothic handwriting, very medieval, medieval and fancy, medieval fancy script. How about we go with that? It's medieval fancy script. <laughs> so that's very exciting. We're going to get to see them get their tattoos, but that is where we leave off with them here. So our next scene with Caitlin, it's another quick one. We have Caitlin and Tyler, and they're going out to lunch with Dawn. Dawn, the adoption counselor. Dawn, spawn of Satan, the adoption counselor. I fucking hate this bitch. So they're sitting down, and Tyler and Caitlin are expressing their current frustration with their inability to know Carly's last name. And essentially, their frustration in not being able to know anything about Carly which again makes me wonder what the fuck they were told when this adoption thing happened. Dawn, you were there. Can you explain this a little better? Spoiler alert, she can't. Dawn just kind of reiterates to them, well, what we have in paper is that it's going to be up to the discretion of the adoptive parents, and they're going to decide what information you get when it's comfortable for them. It's this next bit here that really makes me think Dawn is just no fucking good. Listen, and I was wondering, too, if there's, like, anytime soon, anytime soon, if we can go see her pretty soon. And how would you achieve that? I don't know. Mm, 
And how would you achieve that? (laughs) You fucking bitch. Like, are you joking with me right now? I can't handle that kind of condescending attitude from a bitch who stole a baby from these two little kids. Honestly. The look in her eyes as she responds to Caitlin, she... I don't even think is making eye contact with her. It's hard to tell because of the camera angle. She's looking off center and says, and how do you think you'll achieve that? And at that is when she brings her eye contact, presumably back to Caitlin. It gives me distinct, well, that's a fucking stupid idea. How do you think you're going to do that? Vibes. I feel like it's a question meant to trick Caitlin into thinking that her request is unreasonable. Because unfortunately, I will say it is unreasonable as a woman who has given up her rights as a parent to request visitation. That is unusual. It's very soon, I think. But Caitlin doesn't fucking know that. Dawn, that's your job. Where are you? What? Where are you falling through the cracks here, Dawn? And also, listen to how Caitlin speaks here. And I was wondering too if there's like anytime soon, anytime soon, if we can go see her pretty soon. That's three soons in almost the same amount of seconds. Caitlin is desperate for contact with Carly. And that is terrible and heart-wrenching for me to see. What is happening here? And When she's asking, do you think there's any time soon we can do this, Dawn? She's asking you to fucking set up the appointment, Dawn. She wants you to facilitate that, you dumb bitch. Why are you pretending like you don't know that? This is very upsetting to me as a woman and as someone who likes to protect young, stupid people. I love protecting the young and stupid. (laughs) And unfortunately, Caitlin is young and naive here and falls into the category of someone who can be taken advantage of by shitty people like Dawn. Dawn does come back with a somewhat redeeming comment to Caitlin and says, also, you should make sure that you're really ready for something like that before you go planning visits. Not inaccurate. But once again, Dawn, we need your help in getting her mentally prepared for something like that. That's clearly where she wants to be. She's asking for closure. I'll have closure if I know their last name. I'll have closure if I know where she lives. She needs that. You need to start providing that, Dawn. You're kind of leaving her hanging here, and it's really pissing me off. And there's really not much more to that scene. We have Tyler airing his own little grievances, which don't sound as desperate as Caitlin's, but doesn't mean it's any less valid. But he's saying that it's really hard for them right now, and it's hard to cling on to that trust, that trust in Brandon and Teresa. And editing or not, we don't hear anything from Dawn. The scene cuts away, and they head on to the next girl. It's super fucking shitty, if you ask me. When we next see Caitlin and Tyler, they are finally getting their Carly tattoos. Tyler gets his tattoo right in the middle of his torso. Like, it's underneath where, like, your breastbone is, but above your belly button. That's where his tattoo is. Caitlin gets hers on the back of her left shoulder. I've been tattooed on the back of my left shoulder, and I think it was very painful for me, but I also have fibromyalgia, which is more active on my left side than my right, which I completely fucking forgot about when I placed the tattoo. It it wasn't until the needle started going where I was like, oh shit, I forgot. That's that side. I can't do this. I did it. I didn't sit well. Anyway, Caitlin and Tyler's work came out looking pretty good. 
I will say, honestly, Caitlin's looked a little bit better than Tyler's. Remember, Caitlin had the footprint. Tyler had the handprint from Carly's birth. I don't know what the difference with the artists were, but the artist that Caitlin had was definitely a little bit more skilled in colorizing and imprinting prints instead of solid blocks of color. Tyler's came out looking a little bit like a Rorschach. But the work was done, and they were happy with it, and that's all we can really ask for. Later that night, Caitlin and Tyler are shown going to the beach with some of their friends. Looks like they're having a cool, fun bonfire. That's exciting. They're all there and showing off their new tattoos, so that's fun for them. It's very much, look at me, look at this cool thing I did. Getting a tattoo at that age is always a big deal, so I can't even judge. That's super exciting for anybody. And for them, it gives them a reason to talk about Carly a little bit more, which I think both of them need in their life. So that's good too. Unfortunately, once the novelty of the tattoo wears off and they stop talking about that part, they end up talking about when the next time Tyler and Caitlin think they'll see Carly is. So we see a kind of a repeat of the conversation they just had with Dawn, except they're reiterating what Dawn has told them to all of their friends. It is a repeat scene, okay, whatever. But you can tell in their voice, they don't even like what they have to say. Oh, you know, we want to see them soon, but it's going to take a while to get flights out. You have to plan. You can't just demand that they come see you. All true. But they're trying to convince their friends of something that they're not even convinced of. They do talk about trust again and how they're hanging on to that kind of convincing themselves, oh, we have this trust. We have this trust that we're hanging on to. When in actuality, it's do we have this trust? Are we hanging on to anything tangible or is it in our mind? But other than that, this is a scene we've seen before. Next, we catch up with Amber in her little apartment with Leah and Gary, and we learn that Amber is getting ready to go back to school to get her GED. She mentions how other girls her age are about to be graduating or have already graduated, but since she dropped out to take care of Leah, she's not experiencing any of that. She doesn't want to depend on Gary anymore either and would like to start making her own money, so is excited to start looking into GED work. Now that the voiceover has let us know all that, we are promptly shown Amber in the bathroom doing her hair, calling to Gary to please give her some of her medicine. (laughs) Very first fucking thing. I guess if we were watching, we should have known what the producers were trying to tell us this whole whole time. Gary acquiesces, gets her her medication, and says, here's your treat Gary good pill. Damn, like, how bad do you treat him when you're not high on Xanax, or Clonopin, as it were? It doesn't really seem to do much good. The viewer is shown her taking the pill, she finishes doing her hair, and she comes out onto their floor mattress, which I'm not dissing. I fucking love floor mattresses. She comes out onto their floor mattress where Gary is laying down and Leah is with him, and she starts making phone calls regarding her GED. Well, like I said, that clonopin's not really working. This girl fucking flips out because no one is answering the phone. Just stay right here so I can hear. I'm like... Come on, just get an answer machine or something. Go to an answer machine! 
There's probably an answer machine because there's a building that's Are nobody... you serious? Yeah. This is bull. Wait, don't repeat that. Let go, let go. That's, don't say bullcrap. No, I'm tired of calling all these numbers. Leah, don't say the bullcrap words. <laughs> Gary, oh my gosh. There's such duality in him saying that. Like, yes, you don't want your child to say bullshit when they're not even verbal yet. But it's definitely a dig on Amber, too. Like, why the fuck are you swearing like that in front of our one-year-old? It is not appropriate. But is that like a crazy strong reaction or is it just me? It seems like she's freaking out. But I, I mean, I get what she says at the end. Like, I'm... <laughs> I'm sick of, I can't, I'm sick of dialing all these numbers. Yeah, I fucking, I hate making phone calls. I hate making phone calls. I hate calling multiple people. Like one time I had a few unauthorized charges from my debit account. Yeah, imagine that nightmare. Do you know how many numbers I had to call that day, Amber? Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. I was sick of dialing all those numbers, too. Oh, God. This is why I do the podcast. After facing that frustration and admitting defeat, she and Gary are just sitting on the bed, Leah still between them, discussing her potential options going forward, since just this singular moment she can't get in touch with someone at the GED office because she's probably calling on a Saturday. Well, Gary actually makes a strange suggestion of him giving her an allowance from his income. Now, normally I don't like to encourage Amber's behavior, but in response to this, she does what I think is very appropriate. Makes a what the fuck are you talking about face and says to him straight up, what? I'm not a kid. You're not going to treat me like one. I'm going to make my own money. That's why I'm going back to school at all. Of course, she says it in a much more abrasive tone than I just reiterated. I don't see it was harmful, but it was definitely a strong reaction. And I think it was an appropriate one because the second you allow somebody in this type of dynamic, especially when he's older and was already kind of the breadwinner of the two of them, the second you're put in a situation where you have to ask that person for money or where they are in charge of how much you are spending or what you can buy, everything will come with a price tag of whatever she'll have to hear about it later. And we know they're both a little toxic to each other, so it would only go into a huge explosion of a fight, which is why I think in this situation, her reaction of what the fuck are you talking about, Gary, is the right one. So thank you, Amber, in this situation for reacting that way. We're not going to do that. The next time we meet up with Amber, she is getting her stuff together, literally and figuratively, to go meet her career counselor to discuss the next steps in getting her GED plans off the ground. Very exciting. We just saw a scene where she was very frustrated. She could not get anybody on the phone. And it's super easy to quit when you're in those beginning stages of a new project, especially when you're frustrated, especially when you do, let's let's be honest, when you have as much stress as Amber has, it would be super easy for her to quit. But we see her actually taking lead here and heading to an appointment to get these plans moving. So kudos to you, Amber. However, a few things happen in this scene that 
I've never noticed before, and I've rewatched this show mm, upwards of a thousand billion times, I would say. But rewatching it in a critical way where I have to recap for an audience is making me see some things a little differently. What happens is she arrives at the appointment, gets out of the car, looks in her trunk, look in the trunk, and is dismayed. Apparently, Gary was supposed to leave the stroller for her, and instead of leaving the stroller, he left nothing. Amber has the following conversation with him over the phone. Hey, Gary, guess what? You didn't leave me the stroller. I asked you last night to leave me the stroller. Oh, I'm sorry, baby. Oh, I'm sorry, baby. You're sorry about everything, Gary. You're so fu- You're just a sorry person. I have so much I need to do today. Whatever. Bye. Now, as viewers, we don't know in those last few moments if Gary is saying something and it's been cut out or if it's just silent on the other end. Either way, I think we can all agree that you're just a sorry person is really a fucking shitty thing to say, right? Like, I'm not reaching here with this one, I don't think at all. You're just a sorry person, Gary. Yes, he made a mistake here. He did not follow through on something that she was depending on him for. Should she have checked the trunk before she left the house? 100% absolutely, especially given that he is not the most reliable person in the world. Instead, she didn't check the trunk. She checks the trunk when she gets there, realizes she's shit out of luck as far as a stroller is concerned, but that does answer the stroller question. I guess they do have one. And instead, we see her taking her anger, and probably her anger at herself, out on Gary, who may be at work. Okay. And I'm not sure if I can really comment on the mental state of Amber at this time, but we'll see if the next part here doesn't give us any hints. We see Amber go into the back seat of the car where Leah is sleeping in her baby carrier. I mean, it's a car seat, but it's, it's a baby carrier. Remember the baby carrier that Amber kept her in the entire dinner or lunch at the Mexican restaurant in the last episode? Yeah, that one. She's in that baby carrier. She's sleeping. She's fine. You could pick up the baby carrier, walk out with her in the carrier, and go into the meeting. Sorry, there was a misunderstanding. She's just going to stay in the carrier for now unless she gets fussy. She was sleeping, so hopefully she'll just head back to sleep. That seems like the logical thing to do. Again, I'm looking at this as a 30-year-old, high on weed, not clonopin. But Amber, instead, takes baby Leah out of the car seat, baby carrier, car seat, whatever, wakes her up, takes her in on her hip into the meeting and places her on the table in the meeting room. As we learned last episode, Leah is mobile now. (laughs) Did you hear Amber say that? (laughs) Leah's mobile now. You're having a meeting about your career path with somebody that can greatly aid you. And to show how responsible you are, you just put your baby on the table Little Leah is crawling around. Um, She's not making any fuss or anything. She's not messing anything up or throwing things, but she's crawling around being a little baby on the table. Bitch, if she gets too far away from you, what are you going to do? If she's all the way on the other side of this table, you can't reach her. This table, to describe it for you, 
it's not like a desk or anything like that. It's um, similar to what a lunchroom table at a high school cafeteria would look like. It's in a meeting room. It's probably meant for a board meeting. So it's kind of like that. It's it's wide. It's long. There's a lot of ground for a small child to cover. Why did you place her on the table? Why did we do that? I don't understand why we did that. Okay. I haven't even personally watched the part about the meeting yet where she's actually talking to this woman because I am too distracted by, obviously, baby Leah having a ball on the table. And then this woman who she's there to meet, her career counselor. Amber greets her and the woman has her eyes glued to baby Leah because she knows that child can fall off the fucking table at any moment. Her facial expression, I would say it most resembles being appalled, shocked, and extremely worried about what is sitting in front of her right now. What did she just see? Did this, did this girl really just walk in and put her baby on a table? Well, the meeting goes about, about as well as you would expect. It doesn't go terribly. It's not a plane crash, train wreck, whatever you want to say, but... We do have Amber struggling to express why she's there. She tells the lady, well, I'm looking at all the options. And then she stops, backs up. See, I was in school, but then I had a baby and now I, I need something that works around my schedule. So she's really kind of jumping around, not completing a full thought. If you ask me, she, her eyes, she doesn't quite look all there. So I wouldn't be surprised if she has once again taken her medicine prior to coming to this appointment, which is why she didn't put Leah just in the carrier and leave her there. By the middle of this scene in the meeting, we do see Leah on Amber's lap, so rest easy, fellow listeners. Baby Leah does not fall off the table. The lady that she's speaking with comes to the conclusion with Amber that, well, maybe online classes would be the best for you since it does sound like you have a tough schedule to keep and you got the baby going on. That would probably be the best option for your schedule. Amber then asks about financial aid and the counselor lets her know, unfortunately, there is no financial aid given with the online courses. She can make it to the GED courses. The woman says, well, we know you could get there but the online courses, that's going to be a little different. Amber doesn't like hearing this news and she starts to cry. And I can come down on her for being high in this meeting and shit like that and not putting baby Leah in a carrier, but I feel her on this one. I hate when I'm in a position to where I need to come off with my shit together to a certain degree. And then I start crying for some fucking reason. Something said, something doesn't go my way. I don't know how to express myself without yelling, so I'll just cry. You know, dumb shit like that puts me in a shitty position <laughs> to show people how responsible and level-headed I am. We see her break down a little bit. She tells the career counselor, I just keep getting bad news. The career counselor tries to be as reassuring as possible from three feet away across the table and says, you know, it's going to be fine. We can still look at the options. And Amber says something that I think resonates with so many Americans today. I don't have any money to pay for anything, so I know I don't have any options. So. Oh, God, is that not meta as fuck? Yeah. Yeah, I hear that too. I, I also don't have any money and very few options are open to me. Ah, uh, millennial angst. I, I've missed you. 
The scene ends with Amber tearily agreeing with her career counselor that she'll go with the GED courses. That's going to be the best course of action. So apparently the GED must not require payment um, to take and or complete, which is great. I didn't know that if that's true. I'm not going to look it up because I'm fucking lazy as shit. But at least in Amber's case, at least she's going to be able to afford that and start her way onto that track, which we've seen her express in a very strong way this episode and the last episode. So even though it might not be exactly what Amber wants at this time, it's going to be her best bet. And it's going to be best for Leah in the long run because she's going to have a mother who's educated and has shown her that she can accomplish anything even when times are hard. I feel like this is another great time to give a shout out to Christina, Leah's stepmom. Hi, Christina. We love you. We quickly check in with Amber and see her studying for her GED. She says she's taking her practice test today, so she has to study. But baby Leah, as mobile as she is, is walking around the apartment, getting into everything she can because she's a small child. It's kind of what they do. In a few moments after we see many scenes of Leah causing all kinds of havoc around Amber, making it impossible for her to study, Amber closes the laptop and says, I guess I'm not going to get any studying done today. I mean, yeah, it's difficult to study when you've got a child around, but she's literally just sitting on the couch yelling at Leah to do different things. (laughs) Like, Leah, don't do that. No, baby, no. No, baby. What the fuck? She's not a dog. Once again, Leah wants out. No, baby, no. (laughs) I can't take this shit, Amber. Girl, you better get your study on because you've got a few things to learn. So slight correction, Amber isn't taking her practice GED test. She's taking her pre-GED course placement test. And that's where we catch up with her in her next scene, coming out from taking the pre-GED placement exam. And she is very relieved to have that over with. She says it was very stressful and she's worried about how she did. Amber makes her way back to her apartment where Gary and Leah are, and it looks like Gary has a few friends over. I think Amber's brother, Sean, is also there. She walks in, everybody greets everybody. Amber is tired. You can tell she's very tired. Perhaps she's high. Maybe it's both. Who am I to judge? Either way, we see her sit down with the guys, and she just starts explaining her day and how things went at the GED placement exam. Of course, it can never be that simple, and we get to witness another Amber and Gary fight. Like, everybody, everybody's in this room, like, kind of close mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. There's four people at this, like, picnic table. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have a picnic or two? Gary, stop it! What the fuck are you talking about? Did you guys have a picnic there, too? Did Amber think it was that funny? Stop being such a immature idiot. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, I guess not. I know you call it a picnic table for having a picnic. Oh my god, dude. You're such a jackass, Gary. You're so lucky I'm even around you or even with you. You're, you're that stupid. I'm sorry that you have a picnic life, bitch. Oh, you want to talk to me about picnic tables? Mm-mm. No, that's not going down in here. I'm sorry, you got a picnic life, bitch. You have a picnic life. Now what are you going to say about it? I have a picnic wife. 
Yeah, that's right. Now you're questioning the meaning of your picnic life. I just did that. I feel like that's what Amber is saying here. I don't want to overlook the terribly abusive things that she did say, but I've been waiting for this picnic life bitch quote since I've started this podcast. Oh my God. If that's not one of the most classic teen mom lines, I, I don't know what is. Sorry of a picnic life, bitch. Amber rounds out that lovely little gem by her voiceover letting the viewer know, Gary doesn't care I'm getting my GED, but I'm doing it for Leah. Now, I don't think that's a fair statement. I am i wouldn't say that Gary doesn't care that she's getting her GED. I don't think it's his number one concern. I'm not sure he takes her seriously, but I think in that moment when he made that... <laughs> When he, <laughs> when he made that ill-fated picnic table joke, I feel like he might have just been trying to show off for the friends that were there, trying to make a joke in the situation and make his friends laugh, and Amber took it very seriously. Maybe not the most appropriate time to be making that joke, maybe not the most appropriate time to be taking Gary so seriously when we know he can't take anything seriously. So I think both of them were a little bit at fault there. I seem to get that a lot with these two. But God, did we get a moment of gold out of that, you guys? Oh, man. Yeah, keep working for that GED, Amber. This is great. This is great. Amber's final scene that I nearly forgot to comment on has Amber heading back to the career counselor office, ready to get her GED placement, whatever the fuck it was, exam results. She's really, really nervous. She knows that during the test she was nervous, and she's not sure how she did, as we heard her mention earlier. She heads into the office. She greets the same career counselor who greeted her last time and finds out she actually did really well on the practice exam or placement test, whatever the fuck. So this is great news for Amber, who just said that she keeps getting bad news. So yay, Amber, let's celebrate in some good news. She heads on home and is very, very thrilled with these results. And that is where we leave it with Amber for this second episode of Teen Mom. Oh, if you could only see my face as we meet back up with Farah. It is a short Farah scene. Our first introduction to her in this episode is very quick, but we meet up with Farah. She's taking care of baby Sophia, who is looking so cute and adorable. She's got these huge, big round eyes and curly brown hair. It's those soft kind of curls, just barely little wisps of curls, but you could tell if it grew out, it would be beautiful and wavy and curly and oh, just so sweet. So we see baby Sophia being fed by mama and it's a nice little scene. But Farah's voiceover isn't so nice. She's just talking about how she's still been trying to date and still been trying to hide it from her family. In fact, she's about to go on a date today. She met this boy Shaq, I don't know where, school, work, it doesn't fucking matter because I'm sure he'll be gone by the end of the episode. They go on a putt-putt golf date. It's your average first date, the strenuous questions, the forced laughs and smiles. I don't feel any chemistry here at all. At least with Cole, I could tell she was genuinely interested. I feel like with Shaq, he doesn't seem at all interested in what she's saying. His voice stays like this most of the time. Any question that's answered is answered in this way. 
and she sounds halfway pissed off at him with anything she says. He asks her what her favorite food is. She says, well, I don't really know, but I like Italian. What's yours? She doesn't really sound like she wants to be there or that she thinks that's an interesting question. And I don't know why she's wasting her time, but Farah must see something in him that she's not showing to us as viewers because she does go so far as to ask him, you know, I have a daughter, is that going to be a problem? I'm summarizing. Shaq says, no, my mom had me when she was really young, so it shouldn't be a problem. Okay, so he's passed that test so far. Of course, he is answering that question while he's on camera and on a very uncomfortable date. It's really not a reliable answer, but Farrah's going to eat it up because that's exactly what she wants to hear. This very short scene ends with Farrah saying, you know, I think I might like this guy, so I'm not going to rush into telling my mom about him. Probably a good idea, but also you know she's going to freak the fuck out when she finds out, so why delay the inevitable? Again, that teenage thought. But that's where we close out on Farah on her very first scene in the second episode. Very different than the first episode. I like the contrast so far. So, almost as if MTV is apologizing for the overload of Farah in the last episode... It's 14 minutes before we see Farah again. 14 minutes of just Amber, Caitlin, and Macy, which I, for one, was grateful for. But we do eventually catch back up with Farah. She is on the phone with Shaq, who she's asking if he would like to hang out that night. He says, yeah, but I have a practice. Which to us, we know that means no. I don't. But Farah doesn't understand that. Farah takes that as, oh, I want to come to your practice. Is that okay? Yeah, he says that's fine. And we hear Farah ask, oh, I'm going to bring Sophia. Is that okay? And then the scene cuts to her on her way. We as viewers don't get an answer to that question, which makes me wonder what he said and how he answered that. To me, that seems like a big step because if they stay the whole time and the game ends or the scrimmage ends and he goes and talks to Farah, then he's going to by proxy meet Sophia. I don't know if Farah didn't think that one through or if that's her plan, but she arrives there at the scrimmage with one of her friends and of course Sophia. It seems okay at first, but it's not long until Farah starts feeling a little uncomfortable. She mentions more than once that this is where she used to cheer. She hasn't brought Sophia to this place since she was a cheerleader. We know that her cheerleading is a source of pain for her at this point. Even though she seemed very comfortable with her decision to leave, it's very clear the way she speaks about it and her anxiety about being here right now. She's not fully over the cheerleading situation and how people who she thought were her friends turned their back on her. And I think we see that come back here to prey on her anxieties just a little bit. We hear Farah's friend ask her, so how do you feel about all this? And we've seen cuts of girls looking at her, um, gestures that appear to be being made towards her. And we do see Shaq on the field pointing at something as he talks to one of his friends. I'm not sure if we're supposed to infer that he's gesturing towards Farah or if he's trying to divert someone's attention away from Farah. I don't really understand why they put that in there. 
But Farrah answers her friend's question and says, yeah, I I don't really like this. You know, I'm not really a big fan of this right now. People are staring. Uh, yeah. Her friend quickly follows up with, well, you know, if you're uncomfortable, we can totally leave. It's very clear that her friend also wants to leave. And Farrah agrees with her. Yeah, let's bolt. But I have to ask, do you think maybe it's the camera crew that's out with you? It's probably like a Thursday weekday afternoon. You're dressed to the nines and you look great, girl. But you're going to be getting a few stares. Everyone else is in like jean shorts and a t-shirt. This is Iowa, okay? Farah is doing the New York Tuesday or Thursday. And good for her for doing it. But that plus a camera crew equals attention. So I'm sorry you feel uncomfortable, Farah, But I didn't know what you might be expecting. Ugh, I hate saying that. So she and her friend head on home, and that's the end of that scene. We don't see her catch up with Shaq, and she doesn't appear to call him or anything after that. In fact, we see Farah back at home with Sophia, her two friends from the last episode who went with her on her Cole confrontation, come on over, and they're all hanging out. And they're just kind of talking about how that experience went. Uh, She's relaying all that information, all that just happened to them. And she says, you know, I don't think I want Shaq to meet Sophia this early. I didn't want to put him in that weird position with having this girl's baby here. So it sounds like maybe she didn't consider everything when bringing Sophia along. Maybe she was just excited to be seeing Shaq and was like, yeah, come on, baby Sophia, we can go together. I'll try to give her the benefit of the doubt here. I really am basing that on nothing. Then we have Farah's mom come in, lovely Deborah, saying hello to them and hello to Sophia. And Farah asks her if she could watch Sophia tonight so she can go out with her friends. But mom, I just had to ask, so will you watch her while we go to dinner? Farah, I'm tired. I'm in severe pain. Well, like, watch her, like, just lay down with her. I'll do everything and get everything ready so you don't have to yeah. do anything. And get the babas lined That's up. That's what I'm saying. No, what I'm trying to find out is, do you understand where you should be spending yeah, your time? Yeah, I understand. I know. And where should you spend your time? Wherever it needs to be spent. But I want to make sure that uh, we have a priority of baby. Sophia is my priority, Mom. There's sometimes during my week that I can fit in other people. When I can do that, I will do that, Mom. That's only normal. That's what normal people do. Okay, but normal people also hire babysitters. They pay them money. Or they take the baby with them because... It's your baby. So that's the difference, Farah. That is what you're not picking up here. And Deb must have chronic pain issues because I never see her in severe pain, but I feel like only terrible people who manipulate their children say things like, I'm in severe pain, Farah. And surely Deb isn't that kind of person, so she must have a chronic illness. We do see Deb agree to take care of Sophia for the night for free. I guess Farah did whatever she told Deb that she would do in order to get to go out tonight. And that ends Farah's scene. We see her pulling out of the driveway with her friends. Deb and Sophia are inside waving goodbye. So I see what they're trying to do. I see what they're trying to say about Farah. She is also going out too much. Maybe the female equivalent of Ryan. I hope not because Ryan seems like a much more cold-hearted person than Farah. In Farah's next scene, we see her ditching Sophia once again, but this time to go hang out with her sister. I don't know why she doesn't want to bring Sophia 
places with her. I feel like her aunt would love to spend time with baby Sophia, but that's not what we see happen here. Farah brings pizza by, and she and her sister are just catching up in her sister's apartment. What starts as catching up, though, turns into... Well, you tell me what you think this is. What are you doing tonight? Um, tonight, it's going on the date, and then I'm going back home and hanging out with mom. Every single time I see you, you're not with Sophia. Like, don't you miss her? Don't you want to go be with her? I do miss her. I do see her, but it's like... I think you should go get Sophia and be with Sophia. Wow. So clearly Ashley has taken it upon herself to be the truth bomber in Farrah's life at this time. I'm not sure what she thinks Deb is doing, as if she's not getting that enough from there. Which is why I think we hear Farrah's reaction with that, wow. Again, Ashley is telling the truth 100%. Farrah was coming over expecting a certain kind of encounter. Farah was not going over there expecting her sister to be coming at her in an abrasive manner, no matter how truthful the subject, and she was certainly not expecting to be told what to do with her life by her sister. She gets this enough at home. We see that blow up. I think you're acting too irresponsible and acting too single and too, like, (laughs) unmotherly. I don't think I am single, single, and I don't think I'm not a mom. So how many times have you given up Sophia time for boy time with Shaq? Well, actually, almost every time, if you're going to ask it like that... That's irresponsible. You don't see my schedule, so I don't know how you can make me out to be that way in your own mind, but... I'm asking you, you questions, and you're answering them, and that's why you're making yourself... No, look. you're asking them how you want it to be in your head. Then no, you're I'm making it seem so negative and so bull****. I don't sit here in my head, and I don't sit here and be like, I'm, I'm going to make Farah sound bad. I'm not going to do yeah, that, Farah. No, I don't. So let me kind of describe to you what I think happened here. As I said, Farah wasn't expecting to go into this encounter and get this kind of confrontational, abrasive attitude from her sister. Now we see Farah do some classic manipulation of her own because she doesn't know how to defend herself. Her sister is asking very pointed questions about how she spends her time, and Farah doesn't have a better answer than... Yeah, I give up Sophia time to hang out with Shaq or whatever flavor of the week I have. There's no other way to ask that that could make that sound any better or worse. That's pretty much as bad as you can get. Am I right? When you put it that way, yeah. What? What do you mean, yeah? What do you mean when you put it that way? It's just a last-ditch effort of somebody who feels like they've been put in a corner that needs to defend themselves. It's frustrating as a viewer to watch. It's also probably the expected reaction from any teenager. I'm hoping Vera sees that she shouldn't be prioritizing boys at all. She shouldn't be scheduling. Her schedule should be Sophia. Whatever Sophia's schedule is, that's now your schedule, mommy. Sorry to break it to you. We hear Farrah crying at the end of that clip. She continues to cry as she walks out of the apartment, saying, I'm leaving because you had to act like a fucking idiot, a direct quote from Farrah to her sister before she walks out the door. Farrah continues to cry all the way out to her car and continues to cry on the drive home. There is no voiceover. The scene just closes out on her crying in the car again. I mean, that sucks. That That's not good. I'm sad that Farah is feeling attacked in this moment. 
I don't want to say she doesn't deserve it because I feel like there are times where everybody deserves to be called out on their bullshit, but it was clear Farrah was not prepared for this kind of conversation today. I mean, girl, I'm sorry, but these are the consequences of your actions. Farrah needs to reprioritize. Farrah needs to prioritize, period, because I would imagine if she were actually prioritizing, Sophia would be a little bit higher on the list. But that's where we leave it with Farrah here, and I think that may be her last scene. We are getting close to the end of the episode. Oh, actually, the scene is kind of extended. We pick back up with Farrah after the commercial break. So it does cut to commercial as she's crying in the car, but we pick right back up with her once we come back. And when we do, we see Farrah at her grandmother's house. Farrah gives her the long and short of it and just tells her, Ashley made me feel really immature. She made me feel like a bad mom, basically made me feel all these things about myself that I'm really not. So she paints it for her grandmother in a way that really is not the full truth. I'm sure if she told her grandmother exactly what Ashley was saying, this conversation might go a little differently. As it were, Farrah's grandmother tells her, no, no, that's not true. You're not a bad mom. I love spending time with Sophia. She needs time with her great-grandparents as well. You're doing the best you can with what you were given. And you know what? I'm going to allow this. Farrah needs this encouragement. And... If you ask me, grandmas are the type of people who can be left in the dark with some things. I mean, my grandma doesn't need to know all the things about me. We've seen her grandparents come through for her when she was having serious issues with Deb. So I feel like she just went somewhere that she considers a safe space, got the reassurance she needed to carry on with her day. And by the end of the conversation, we see a bit of a happier Farah. Farah does get a much-needed reset from her grandmother that she's making the right choices, she's making the right decisions, she's doing right for Sophia. And I want to say on the whole, she is, but we really have to get past this boy thing. We have to get over the male validation. I'm still trying to do that myself, Farah. I know it's hard, but I would rather you be validated as a good parent than as a good girlfriend or wifey or whatever it is you're trying to be. Let's focus on Sophia, please. After Macy's final scene, we're shown the montage of all the girls and what we learned about them this episode. We are first shown Caitlin and Tyler, who are looking very sad as they're looking onto a picture of Carly, Brandon, and Teresa all posed together as a family unit. Will they get to know Carly's last name? Are they going to learn where she lives? It's all a question mark, and we're really feeling that here in this brief moment we have with Caitlin and Tyler. Next, we see Farah sitting on a park bench with Jack laughing, enjoying their time together. I have no idea when this footage was taken. It looks like it was probably around the time where they were going on that first date that we saw. Essentially, Farrah's still dating. Next, Gary is shown sitting by himself in the living room, enjoying his picnic life, and Amber is in another room in their apartment with baby Leah, very happy, looking like she's still coming off the joy from getting such a great score on her pre-GED placement exam. So that's a happier moment, but we do notice that Gary is looking a little dejected here, rightfully so. He's kind of been put through the ringer this episode, and it's not fair. The viewers get one more shot of Macy and cutie baby Bentley before the scene closes out and ends the second episode of Teen Mom OG. Well, guys, thank you so much for dropping by, getting high, and talking a little Teen Mom with me. Next time, we're going to talk about the third episode of Teen Mom, Fallout. Sounds like there's going to be a lot more drama in there and a lot more 
fallout from what we saw on this episode today. So I hope everybody can join me back for that. And I cannot wait to talk about it with you. And I cannot wait to get some more fucking weed. Until then, you can catch us on Instagram at A-T-T-O-D podcast on Instagram. Same handle on Twitter at A-T-T-O-D podcast on Twitter and Instagram. That is the acronym for the show about this time of day. And on there, you'll just find some fun, cute things like bad art I try to do for every episode, promotions for the show, letting you know when the next episode is coming out, just different fun things like that. Or you can also go old school and email at A-T-T-O-D podcast at gmail.com. Again, attodpodcast at gmail.com. So this episode really showed us how each girl handles unexpected stressors. And we all have them, guys. I gotta say, this week, I had all kinds of unexpected stressors. That's one of the reasons why the podcast is late. But I've decided after watching this episode and reflecting on it, I've just gotta let things go, man. I gotta let things roll off my back, take a deep breath, count to 10, all that good stuff to just let things slide and you know what i think to celebrate this newfound attitude i'm gonna get ooh a watermelon sprite from sonic god i haven't had one of those in a while that's gonna be so what what they don't have watermelon they don't have watermelon at sonic anymore are you serious yeah this is bull Weed?